Good morning. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jordan, but I think most of us have met, which is good. Um, strange time for meeting people, isn't it? I, um, like like uh, Dwight mentioned, we're starting a series on the Gospel of, of Mark uh, for this coming year, and our hope is that through this series that you you would encounter not just the Jesus on the page, but the Jesus who is alive. That you wouldn't just know about him, that you would, you would know him. He would become alive to you, almost coming out of the pages of Scripture. That's our hope uh, through this series. And I'll just, I'll ask for the strength of the Lord. Thanks, Dwight, for praying. I also feel my need for the Spirit. Um, Spirit, would you... Would you anoint uh, these words? Would you use them to reach our hearts to bring transformation? Would we encounter you through this in Jesus' name? Amen. So we're going to start here um, with the heading. If you have your Bible, it says, The Gospel According to Mark. So who is Mark? Well, Mark was not, not one of Jesus's disciples, those 12 guys that followed Jesus around. He was not there. He's not in the painting of the Last Supper. Okay, then how, and this is a question for you, how did Mark write out everything he wrote? Where did he get his information from? Does anybody know to you, the audience? Peter, that's right. Yeah, he had, he had some friends who were in that core group of disciples, of apostles. That's right. There's also another thing I'll bring in here, and that he, he lived in Jerusalem at the same time period as Jesus. So he probably would have witnessed some of Jesus' public teaching and or his uh, death. Um, and like you mentioned, he was also close uh, to Peter, to the apostles. Um, his family was early followers of Jesus. We know uh, from Acts that when Peter is let out of prison, where does he go? Peter's... Uh, to Mark's mom's house. Peter goes to Mark's mom's house. They're having a prayer meeting there. Knock, knock, knock. It's a whole story. Um, Peter's, um, not Peter, Mark's cousin Barnabas. There's Mark and Mark is his cousin Barnabas, and they go on a missionary journey, the very first one with Paul. All right? Um, Peter refers to Mark as his, his, Mark, my son. It's not his actual son, but there's a close relationship there. And so, Mark, he's close to these apostles. Um, and it's actually that relationship with Peter that is the most important part of knowing how Mark came to be. Um, there's a bishop, Papis, in 140, he writes that uh, Mark wrote out Peter's teachings, his sermons. It's a compilation of that. And so that's what became the gospel of Mark, inspired by God. Now, why didn't Peter just write this out himself? Question for you. Why not? What about Peter? Yeah, that's right. Peter wasn't learned. Um, he was a fisherman. <laughs> and so he needed his friend, his literate friend, to write the stuff down. You know, when I was dating my now wife, Sandra at McGill, I was the only friend who had a car. I was like the friend with a car. Maybe, maybe Mark was, <laughs> you know the friend who could write. I don't, we don't know, you know. But anyway, Mark is this compilation of Peter's uh, his memories inspired by the Spirit. Um, and uh, when was it written? Well, it was written about 20 to 30 years after 
uh, Jesus departed the earth. It's likely the earliest uh, gospel. Why then? Well, in AD 64, we know um, this is a, a recorded thing that the Emperor Nero was burning Christians at the stake. Um, and it could be that Peter and Paul died during that persecution, during that time. And so it became very important that we need to write out the oral traditions about Jesus. And so Mark does that in his gospel. Now, why did he do that? And this is where we're going to start to get into the text. Why did Mark write this out? Well, verse 1, Mark 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And what you have here is a little snapshot of ancient bio, ancient biography. Unlike modern biography, it doesn't, there's no title page, unless your Bible add one, you know. There's no title page, there's no thesis statement. It's all sort of smashed into this one statement, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the thesis statement, title page, in one. This is what Mark is intending to communicate. <clears throat> and this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gospel was a, a Greek word used by messengers to declare the victory of an incoming king. So Mark is saying, I am bringing you good news of a victory that has taken place. In fact, this is just the beginning of the good news of the victory that's unfolding. The beginning. Unfolding through who? Through Jesus. This is the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Now, <clears throat> Christ and Son of God here are not, Christ is not a last name. It's a title. And it's connected to this idea of king. There's a whole flood of meaning behind that title that we won't get into. And the Son of God is a similar title. And to know what Mark means by this, is it like sons of God, like we're sons of God? To know what Mark means, we have to, we have to just read on. Um, it's a bit of a cliffhanger, but luckily for us, we don't have to read far. Um, the answer is right in our text. And so here's a question for you. Who, who is the messenger who is preparing the way in this text? As, as we, when, it was, when Dwight read it, who is the messenger being referred to here? That's right, John the Baptist. Verse 2 and 3 refer to John the Baptist in verse 4. John appeared, baptizing. Okay, and who is he preparing the way for? For Jesus, yeah. Who In verse 3 it says he's preparing the way for the Lord. This is a quotation from the prophets who would have written in Hebrew. And if you go to this reference in Isaiah in Hebrew, it's Yahweh. He's preparing the way for Yahweh, Yahweh, the word for God. In other words, Mark is saying, Jesus is Yahweh come. Jesus is God we can encounter. This is, this is earth-shattering, shocking reality. Mark being one of the earliest gospels, don't let anybody ever tell you that, you know, Jesus became God later in church tradition. Here it is in the opening verses of the earliest gospel. Jesus is God. And so why is Mark writing this book? He's writing this biography to us to persuade us of the identity of the person of Jesus. That Jesus is more than just some mere historical figure. No. Jesus is the one the, the one bringing this good news of victory, the incoming king who is God that you and I can encounter. This is what Mark wants for us. He wants us to encounter God. Is this what you want? Do you want to encounter God? See, this is what Christianity is, 
is ultimately all about, about intimate connection with God, that you can know God, God, the creator of the universe. It's astounding. And it's through Jesus, the person of Jesus, that you can know and encounter God. Now, what do I mean by that? What do I mean encounter God? Well, it's that you can, you can know his peace, his joy, his love, so that you no longer live wondering, wandering like lost, who am I? No, you're not alone. He is with you. You have purpose and direction for your life. That's what encountering God looks like. Or it looks like getting little glimpses of his power and his might and his splendor in your life such that you no longer live bound by your own self-destructive tendencies and passions. No, you can be freed by Jesus. That's what it looks like to encounter God. And so we... If you've been in the church for a while, you probably know that. Yeah, Christianity is about relationship with God. Yeah, I believe that. But what I'm talking about here is not mere belief. It's the experience of encountering God. Have you experienced this? I know a lot of you, there's, there, is, there is good desire for God in so many of you. Many of you are pursuing God. And yet I also know at the same time, this past year has been a difficult Year, a year in which many of you have experienced apathy and dullness in your faith. And I would say, don't sit on that. Don't wait on that. Ask, why am I experiencing this apathy or this dullness? It's not, it's not something that's neutral. Get behind it. See, it just, it just might be that your apathy and your dullness is because you are afraid of what a real encounter with God might actually ask of you. Does that make sense? That he could ask of you something you don't want to give up. And so the reality is, is that there are parts of you that are just not ready for a real, full encounter with God. We're afraid of that. And so, this is what we see actually in our text as well in a way. See, have you ever wondered why John the Baptist had to exist? Like, why not just jump to verse 9 where Jesus appears? Well, it's because the people of God like us, we're not prepared to see Jesus for who he really is. And that was the whole purpose and the message of John the Baptist. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. How do we prepare for an encounter with God? Verses, that's in verse 2 to uh, 8. <clears throat> and we're looking at, at that through the person of John the Baptist, and that's his very purpose. All right, so let's get into it more. <clears throat> verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet. So Mark here, he's starting his book by referring to the prophets. These are people who would have heard from God in, in history for, you know, giving insight to present and future circumstances. And so Mark is quoting them and he's saying, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, the gospel doesn't just start with Jesus. It doesn't just start with John. It started with the Old Testament prophets of old who foretold of Jesus coming. And so Mark, he's going to quote Old Testament prophets. He starts first uh, with Malachi, this, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. All right, that's from Malachi, and he splices this together with another prophet, Isaiah, a more prominent, well-known prophet with a larger vision, which is why he says it's um, 
from Isaiah. That's in verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This is from Isaiah chapter 40. And one of the things that you notice as we get into this, what Mark is doing is he's, he's showing us that the Bible, among other things, is a, is a hyperlinked book. It all kind of works together, all these bits and pieces that refer to each other. And the link here is of a messenger preparing the way for the Lord. Now, why would Mark bring in this link? What's going on here? Well, Mark is saying that all of these things, you know, John the Baptist coming and the prophets of old, Isaiah and Malachi and the things that they're talking about and even the stories behind them, all of these things are setting the stage for the arrival of Jesus, for an encounter with God. The stage is set here then. The only thing missing is God himself. And so for the Jewish audience, for the Jewish person, the tension of this would have been really big, right? The anticipation of what is being communicated here because they had been given this prophecy in verse two. I will send my messenger before my face. I will send my messenger. That prophecy had been given by Malachi 400 years ago. And since that time, no messenger had come. God had been silent. There had just been silence. And you know what? What we find is in that silence, we know this from elsewhere in Scripture, and we'll see this as we go through Mark. In that silence, the people of God began to fill it in with their own expectations of who God was supposed to be, their own projections of who they wanted God to be. And the funny thing is that in the silence, we're really no different, are we? We do that too, even in like really trivial ways. You know, you like your friend texts you and says, I'll be there soon. And you're like, okay. And then 10, 15 minutes goes by and pretty soon you're like, man, like what's up with them? They're running late. They get delayed. Should I text them? Oh, that'd be rude. No, don't text them. Because you wait a little bit longer. And then sort of like, oh, your mind begins to go those places, right? Starts to, the tension starts to build a bit more and you're like, man, like, you know what? Maybe they're just lazy. Like maybe they're like, they hadn't even left yet and they're just texting me and like, because they hadn't even left yet and they're just trying to cover for that. And your mind keeps going those places. You're like, maybe they don't even like me. Maybe they're not even coming at all, right? We do these kinds of things in the silence. We fill it in with, with you know, these projections, this bad news and we don't just do that in our texting, right? We can do that. We can do that to God too. We can do that to God too in the silence. And what we're finding here is that Mark would bring out that instead of that, instead of these expectations in these projections, what we need to learn to do is actually be silent and just trust and listen to what God has already said. See, instead of us doing all the speaking, like, God here's what you should do, and God, here's who you should be. Instead of that, we need to be doing listening. God, what do you want me to do? God, who do you reveal yourself to be? And you see, when we do that, that actually becomes the first way by which we can prepare our hearts to encounter the real God. The real God. Not the God we want. Not the God we project, but the real God. We have to do that by letting God be God and trust him. 
in this text encourages us that we can trust him, right? We can. Mark says that after 400 years of silence, it was broken by a cry. Verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. This is the cry of John the Baptist, heralding the person of Jesus, preparing the way. How does he prepare the way? Verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So how does he prepare the way? How does he prepare the way for encounter? Two words I'll pull out from there, proclaiming repentance. John prepares us for encounter by proclaiming repentance. See, for us to encounter God, we need to hear the proclamation and we need to clear. That's the repentance. We need to hear and we need to clear our hearts. So first, hear. This is what I've just been saying, that we need to be silent to our own ideas and our own expectations and projections of who we want God to be. And in that space, instead, be silent and listen and let God be who he wants to be, right? Let the real God speak. And that's hearing. We need to hear by faith. God says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The word of God referring to scripture. Scripture, this book, the Bible, 1,400 years, 40 different authors, everything from we saw fishermen to kings, over three continents, in three different languages, all saying, giving the same revelation that goes together and coheres about who God is. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God has already spoken in space and in time, and we need to be silent and listen to what he's already said. So he's revealed himself in an ultimate way. And he also, even today, in a different way, continues to reveal himself. But we need to hear. We need to hear by faith. And the other side of that coin of hearing, it's the same coin. It's just the other side is that we need to clear. See, if you truly hear by faith, you will clear. Want to clear. What did he mean by clear? Repentance. We're going to get to the image of repentance here in a moment. Um, Let's talk about that repentance piece first because it's a bit strange. John in verse four, he says, proclaimed, he came proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, what about this might seem strange? Well, here you have John preaching a message about our sin and the need for repentance. And then in verse five, you have, it says, all of the country of Judea and Jerusalem going out to him. In other words, there was something super attractive about this. It was actually drawing people from everywhere. But why would this be the case? Why would people want to hear a message about their sin and their need for repentance? Wouldn't they want to hear a message about how much God loves them and forgives them? You know what I'm saying? (laughs) See, that just doesn't make any sense. If you just tell a message about how God loves somebody and forgives them, have you ever tried that? Like if I go up to, uh, you know, Raffaella. Say, hey, Raffaella, I forgive you. You're like, well, like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm kind of confused. Like, why are you forgiving me? What wrong did I ever do to you, Jordan? Right? However, on the other hand, here's what changes it. See, what if, Raphael, you knew something wasn't right? What if you knew that there was something affecting our relationship and you just wasn't sure what it was 
And me coming to you would actually then be a huge relief, right? See, if I come to you and say, hey, here's how you wronged me, and instead of me taking it out on you, I actually forgive you. See, that actually comes as a huge relief. It's really helpful for you to hear that. And you know what? Societally, there's the same sort of thing that needs to happen, right? See, we live in a society that knows that something relationally is not right. There's something wrong going on between us. We have these sort of societal things like racism and a history of slavery and and guilt in residential schools and the sterilization of First Nation women and on and on, and this is part of our history. And these, these sins have created a sort of a corporate guilt that has been repressed in our societal consciousness, and it's getting to the, the point where it just feels like it's gonna blow. Like, it's just gonna, like, our society's just gonna, like, rip apart. And there's just this need for, like, a relief and for us to find forgiveness and reconciliation and have repentance. And so a message like this could actually come as a huge relief. And here's the other part of this, is that as Canadians or as Christians, residential schools, we're not apart from that. That's not just a problem out there, that's a problem that's connected to us in here, isn't it? And that can actually be so helpful to come to terms with. There's actually a dignifying element to saying, you know what? I was wrong. There is something wrong with me. I have disordered passions. I have disordered desires. I set myself up with like pride and my smug self-righteousness and I build these like mountains of like pride and isolation or I I recognize my sin and I start to dig in self-loathing and shame and self-pity and victimization And all of this kind of stuff that goes on in us, it actually distorts us. It distorts the way with which we interact with our world. And this is what is happening in our society. And ultimately, more importantly, most importantly, before God. And it can be so relieving. So you know what? That's something called sin. And repentance becomes good news. Like water on a parched soul. See, repentance, it clears the way for us to encounter the forgiveness of God, of God. And this is what John the Baptist is proclaiming. Remember, I said he's proclaiming that we have to both, (coughs) he's the proclamation of repentance. We have to both hear and clear. And the prophetic image here of repentance given by Isaiah is that repentance is clearing a highway through the wilderness. I love that, clearing a highway through the wilderness. I'll quote Isaiah, the same verse, but in the Old Testament. 40 and verse three of Isaiah, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. You know, some years ago, not too many really, before I started pastoring, I, was worked, <clears throat> I worked for a mine site up north And on this mining project, one of the things I I did while I was there is I oversaw a contractor who was building a road for us that in order for us to reach this, you know, valuable mineral deposit, we had to build a 22-kilometer road through uninhabited wilderness. 
And to do that, I mean, we had these huge trucks, right? It had to be straight and flat. We had to drill and blast down mountains and fill valleys. All of this work and effort in order for us to reach the valuable mineral. And this is why I love this image because this is what repentance does. This is the effect of repentance. It clears the way for us to encounter a God. See, it takes the mountains of our pride where we sit up there with our self-righteous smirks in it, drills in it, blasts them, bringing them down low. It takes the valleys of our shame where we sit in shame and self-loathing and victimization and it fills them up by the spirit, the empowering spirit of God. It takes us where we're so, we, we, we don't see this, we're so lost in, in crookedness and self-deception. It takes the bulldozer of God's spirit to come through and straighten it out. This is the work of repentance in our lives. It clears the way so we can reach what is of true value, the glory of God, an encounter with the real and living God. You understand that? See, for us to encounter God, we need to both hear and clear. We need to repent. But how are we going to do that? I mean, this kind of, what I'm setting up here sounds like it could be a whole lot of work, a heck of a lot of work. Like we need to like sit around and wait and listen and be silent and like read the word of God and, you know, repent, beat ourselves up and punish ourselves in order for him to encounter us. But no, that's not what I'm saying. That is not what I'm saying at all. Here's the thing. God actually, before we ever desired to encounter him, desired to encounter us. God desires to encounter you. See, while we were unprepared, God was already preparing a way for us to encounter him. How so? How is God preparing a way for us to encounter him? Well, this is, this is the good news that Mark is talking about here that Jesus is bringing. Let me tell it to you like this. See, here in the context of this passage, there is a huge problem for this Jewish person. You know what that huge problem is? <clears throat> in order to receive forgiveness from sin, it required, it always required, a sacrifice be prepared. See, even in the example I gave earlier with uh, Raphaela, and when I say I forgive you, I'm choosing to absorb into myself the wrong that you have done to me. I'm choosing to absorb the pain of it. Every time I think about it or I'm reminded of it in some way, I, I'm choosing not to bring it up again. I'm choosing to forgive. And so there's an absorption of pain. There's an absorption of hurt. There is a cost to it. There is a sacrifice to it. I, in a way, become a sacrifice. It's painful. And the Jewish people, similarly, they had a system for that given by God of temples and priests and sacrifices for sin in Jerusalem. And that's all in Jerusalem. And then here you have John, and he's not in Jerusalem. He's way out there in the wilderness, right? And he's proclaiming, you know, this. He's proclaiming, repent and, and just be baptized and you'll be forgiven. And so what's missing here? What's missing here? What, what has not been prepared for you? Right, exactly, the sacrifice. You can almost like imagine the people here saying like, John, like, man, you seem like a really great guy. You're like super authentic. Like verse six, you're clothed in camel's hair, leather belt around their waist, eating locusts and wild honeys. Like, bro, John, we like love your message of repentance. You like wear it, bro. But like, how, how can... Forgiveness be freely given without sacrifice. And then you have John. 
saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, you can be freely forgiven because Jesus has already made that payment for you in advance. Jesus was the lamb, the sacrifice prepared on your and my behalf. And if we will receive it, right, given on our behalf, we can receive forgiveness from our sins. We can encounter God. And that is why repentance is a good thing. Repentance is not beating ourselves up. It's, like I said earlier, it's not punishing ourselves. No, it's not the Hail Marys and all of that kind of stuff. No, no, only Jesus can lift us out of the valleys of our guilt and our shame and our self-loathing and depression. Only Jesus can do that. And it's not us punishing ourselves. Jesus was already punished for our sins on our behalf. He was the sacrificial lamb on our behalf so that we did not have to be punished. His price, the price for sin was already paid so that you could receive it freely. And that's grace. And so this is why repentance is not some bad thing that we dread, but a good thing. This is an opportunity for us to receive the grace of God. Repentance clears the way, clears the way. This is the image for us to encounter God so that we can experience his grace flooding over our souls like water on parched and dry soil. Do you want to encounter God? You can. You can. That's what the text is saying. Today, it's possible. It's as simple as turning to God and asking for him, saying you're sorry for what you're done, you've done wrong. You're thankful that he's prepared a way and made it possible. Praying that he changes you by his spirit. This is possible. You can pray that. And you know, I talked about at the beginning of this how some of us <clears throat> were afraid that if we encounter God in his fullness, in his reality, and all of us should have a, a rightful fear about that, but that he, and here's the bad side of the fear, that he might ask of us to become something we do not want to become, that we are not ready to become. And what John's whole message in the book of Mark here is summarized into one line is that, you know what, whatever it is, Jesus is better. He is worthy. You can give it up. For him, it's worth it. He's good, right? Verse seven, John preaches saying, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down in and untie. John wasn't even worthy to untie the straps or the, the shoelaces of Jesus. And it's not here that John had like self-esteem problems. It's not that John was even a bad guy. You know, like you'll see elsewhere and Jesus refers to John of it was one of the, the, the greatest humans who ever lived as a mere human being. It's not that John was a bad guy, no. It's that John knew who Jesus was. It wasn't a difference of degree, it was a difference of kind. Jesus was God. He was worthy of all glory, of all honor, of all worship. Jesus was king and he was worthy and everything is worth it for him. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We can trust him. And so God, John the Baptist, he gets that. He's like, yes, Jesus is God. He's greater, he's mightier, he is worthy. And you know what that means? People don't need me. It isn't about me, it's about him. And so John's whole ministry becomes a ministry of him getting the heck out of the way so that people can encounter God. And that's our ministry as well, isn't it? 
that as Christians, our ministry is a ministry of getting the heck out of the way so that people can encounter God. It's not about me. It's not about Church 21. It's not about you. It is not about your ego or how well you say it or how well I preach it. It is about God. It's about getting people in front of God so they can encounter him for themselves. That's where the real transformation takes place. And that's good news, isn't it? Because that means I don't have to convince you. It's not up to me, and it's not up to you, and it's not some burden on your shoulders. No, you can actually rest in the might and the worthiness of God to do that work of ministry. Just be faithful to him. Rest in him. Our job is to get out of the way. And then finally in verse 8, John says, I have baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Baptism here is referring to, of course, immersion, Its external sense would be water. But that external sense, when we move this to Christian baptism, is not just water. It speaks of an internal reality as well. The internal reality of encountering the supernatural, the living God himself and all his might, his power, and his glory. And that can be possible for you. What does it mean to be baptized in the spirit, though? This is not an expression that comes up again in in the Gospel of Mark. So I'll cover it right here. What does it mean? Well, it comes up again many times in Acts and Peter's other teachings. And when you read the accounts in Acts, you can't but help but notice a difference with what is so commonly thought of it, of of this expression, baptism in the Spirit, today. See, for many today, baptism in the Spirit is merely a fact of doctrine, a sort of subconscious act of affirming Jesus is who he says he is. But when you read those accounts in Acts, The baptism of the Spirit was not just a fact of doctrine. It was a fact of experience, right? It went way beyond that. And so this is why Paul can go around asking people, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I mean, man, how would you answer that if Paul asked you that? Paul comes in, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I think most of us would be like, well, Paul, I, I I don't know what you mean by that. I mean, I thought everybody receives the Spirit when they assent to Jesus being God. And Paul would say like, no, 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 no. It goes way beyond that. See, when you actually encounter the living God, that has an effect on you. It's mer- it goes beyond just mere assent to, to facts of doctrine and knowledge. No, it's the experience of God coming down and into you. And that changes you from the inside out and certainly would go to the extent of affecting something like your emotions. It would express itself. Did you receive the Spirit when you believe? See, this is what baptism of the Spirit is. It's associated with power. It's associated with with joy. And my concern for us is that many of us have settled for so much less than what John and Jesus and Mark are talking about here. That we've settled for mere doctrine when the life of God is on offer for us. The experience of knowing and encountering God himself. You can know that. That is incredible. What does that look like? Well, in Acts, it looked like tongues. It also looked like joy. The expression of overflowing, not necessarily tongues, but overflowing of joy. Think of Mary when she encounters God. My soul does magnify the Lord and rejoice in God my Savior. Or John himself, when he sees Jesus, my joy is now complete. <laughs> this is what's possible when we encounter God, his life transforming joy and power in your life. Do not settle, my friends, for anything less than that. You can encounter God. How? Hear clear. (laughs) 
hear and clear. And so, as I close, a few applications. If you have repented for the first time, if this text, if Jesus through his spirit is moving you to repentance, you need to be baptized. Baptism is something that's exciting. We can do it together. COVID changes it a bit, but I would want you to reach out for me, to to me, and we'll we'll set that up. Another is that you might be feeling, okay, you know what? There is something dulling my heart. There is something in the way between me and God, and I need to clear that. I need to get that out of the way, and you're feeling the weight of it now, and you're like, what do I do about it? How do I confess my sin? I'm going to give you three quick um, tips, I guess, to help you move through confession. First, name your sin for what it is. Name it for what it is. Don't skirt around it. Don't repress it. Don't try and hide it. We tend to defer it and, and, and avoid responsibility and place it on other people. No, no, no. Don't do that. There's no point in doing that. There's no way you can even do that anyway because it's God we're talking about here that your sin was before. So name your sin for what it is. Next, get to the root of it. Ask why you did what you did. Don't just leave it at, oh, I was just, I'm just dull. Like, that's it. No, like, ask, what's going on behind that? What's dulling you? Is it comfort? Is it success? Is it other people's affirmation or fame or whatever? Pray and ask God to, to like, get into it and reveal and clear that mountain or fill that valley so you can figure out what it is. And watch out when you do that for false repentance. See, what's false repentance? False repentance is just it's where you care more about your own affirmations, about like damage and reputation control, than it actually is about caring how your sin has hurt the other, be it God or somebody else. So watch out for false repentance. Getting to the root can help avoid that. Name your sin, get to the root, and then hide nothing. Repentance doesn't keep skeletons in its closet. It brings everything to the light. I love I love the the woman uh, caught in adultery, the story in the gospel where Jesus encounters her. She goes to the well at noon. She's there at noon probably because she's ashamed of her past. And what happens when she encounters Jesus? She goes back to the village where she had experienced so much shame and says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. That's the result of an encounter with God. Freedom from shame. A life filled with joy. No longer concerned about other people's affirmation and approval. No, you know it. You have the approval from the one who matters most. Name your sin, get to the root, and hide nothing. Hide nothing. Satan's a predator. He wants you to hide. He wants you in the dark. He, he wants you alone and in the dark. He's a predator. Hide nothing. Name it, get to the root, and that's how you can confess your sin. And God in that, as you clear the way, it's an opportunity for you to encounter him and for his spirit to move in you and bring healing and bring the restoration that you need and grace upon grace is poured out in your soul. And the dryness is replenished. What's the image of this text, right? Wilderness, mountainous, unaccessible, hard to get to, dry, Enter repentance with Jesus and his spirit, blossoming, level, blooming, fertile. Everything is possible when the spirit of God gets involved. And so that's what's possible in him. You can encounter Jesus like that. You can encounter Jesus like that today. This is what this text is saying. And know him for who he is. Who was Jesus Really, we're going to get more into who Jesus was 
in the coming weeks. As we move through Mark, let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity to to be around you, around your word, around your people today, that you are here moving by your spirit. And I pray, Father, uh, for anyone here in this room who is feeling drawn um, to you more, they desire an encounter with you, Lord, that you, you would not leave them in this place, that they, they, you would uh, empower them to, to hear and, and to clear uh, their hearts from anything that is in the way. Uh, Father, we bring before you all of our dullness, all of our apathy, all of our fears, and we place them at your feet, and we ask, Jesus, come by your Holy Spirit, replace it with your love. Heal us, I pray in Jesus' name. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. This is our prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name, and would you be with us, Father, as we move into a time of worship, sharing, in Jesus' name, amen.